I can't begin to describe to you what a pleasure it is to be back here at Peachtree in Atlanta. Uh, the last time I was here was Christmas Eve 2016, a year and a half ago, and uh, really there, I doubt that there's been a day between then and now that we haven't remembered with a great deal of joy and gladness the time that we spent here with you. And just being in the sanctuary, I was telling the first service, it's like getting, it's kind of like getting CPR, you know. Uh, the Spirit just gets breathed into us. Uh, speaking of the last 18 months, uh, it's been a momentous time for our family, mostly because of Hurricane Harvey, which paid a visit to Houston, you may recall, about 10 months ago. Uh, we have lived, in the 23 years we've been in Houston, we lived in four different homes. Three of those homes flooded during Harvey. Uh, the one that didn't flood is the one we're living in right now. We're very grateful for that because if that hadn't been the case, then our daughter and her family would not have been able to move into us because they were flooded. This is a picture of their house on the west side of Houston. Uh, that was when the water was rising. It went up another three feet, I would say, from that point. So they have been out of the house since then. This is what the house looks like uh, after it's been mucked out, as they say. They had five feet of water in their house for two weeks. And then we, uh, there was nothing to salvage, really. We cleaned out everything, and that's my son-in-law standing here on the street corner. He's 6'8", so it'd give you an idea of the perspective of things. But God has taught us through all of this that he's uh, generous and kind, gracious, benevolent, and he has uh, supplied our needs over and over again. I don't think it's necessarily been every single day, but there haven't been very many days that have passed in between little um, gifts of his blessings. So we're grateful for that. Plus, we have the added benefit of being able to live with our, our um, grandchildren who, at the time when they moved in with us, were a one and a half and five and a half, and now they're, of course, uh, two and six. So if some of you were looking at me right now thinking, he has really gotten a lot older. <laughs> I'm just hoping some of you look at me and think, well, you know, actually, I think he looks a lot younger. And when you have a one and a half year old and a five and a half year old living with you, that's what happens. You get older and younger at the same time. Well, you're in the middle of a series of messages, summer series of messages on the prophets. A prophet carries two functions in uh, the biblical narrative. First of all, a prophet says, what is? It, it's surprisingly difficult to know what is. You can be living in the middle of what is and still not understand it. A prophet's one who comes along and says, this is what's going on. Kind of like that tsunami in Indonesia a number of years ago, you may recall. Uh, people went out, when the, it's like somebody drained the ocean and the water was going away and these people, where they're standing right now, it usually had been covered probably for thousands of years by I don't know how many feet of water and the, the water just went away and so they became very curious and they started moving out uh, into that land and uh, they had no idea what they were walking into. They didn't know what was going on. There were some prophets on the shoreline though, I'm sure, they understood that when it looks like someone's pulled the plug on the ocean, a bad thing is about to happen. And sure enough, the tsunami was coming, as you can see it. The prophets would have been saying to people, don't go out there. Instead, head for high ground, climb a tree, go to the roof of a building, but don't go there. That's what a prophet does. A prophet says, this is what's happening in a way that maybe most people don't understand. And secondly, the, a prophet also tells us what can be. 
what the possibilities are. Albert Einstein uh, was a kind of a prophet in his own way. Einstein said that imagination is more valuable than knowledge. Knowledge is about what is. Imagination is about what can be. You may have heard the story of uh, General George Hall. He was a prisoner of war in a POW camp in Vietnam for seven and a half years. You wonder how he survived. Well, he says his survival was because of golf. Now, and it's not like they gave him golf clubs. It's not like he played golf when he was in a POW camp. But he imagined himself playing golf. He used to love playing golf before he became a prisoner. And so every day, apparently, he would imagine one of the golf courses that he was familiar with, and he would imagine himself playing every single hole under every kind of weather condition with different kinds of people imagining different sorts of shots. And then when he was done with that, he thought of golf courses that he'd never played but that he was familiar with, that he'd always wanted to play. And he did the same thing there, imagined himself playing. Now, when he was finally released after seven and a half years, it made a little bit of news. And so the people who were putting on the Greater New Orleans uh, Pro-Am Golf Tournament invited him to come and play. And he uh, hadn't really touched a golf club much. In seven and a half years, he'd lost 100 pounds, but when he played golf, he shot a 76, which is not bad. I mean, even even if you're a professional, sometimes you'd be happy with a 76. The power of imagination. So that's what prophets do. They speak about what is, and they proclaim what can be. Now, our subject this morning is the prophet Jonah. Jonah is a reluctant prophet. I'm reminded that this last week was the NBA draft, you know, where the professional teams draft the best players out of college to come and play for them. Well, if there had been a prophetic draft, Jonah would not have been selected. I don't think in any round. It just wasn't a job he was interested in, so God had a lot of work to do with Jonah to prepare him to become a prophet, and I actually think that it's the kind of work that God is doing in all of our lives today. The first thing that God had to do with Jonah was to educate him. In fact, if we read the very first verses out of Jonah, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now you get the picture for Jonah. So the word of the Lord came to him. In fact, those opening words from the book of Jonah are quite startling to me. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Really, when you think about that, how does the word of the Lord come to anyone? Seven and a half billion of us on the planet right now. How can God come to speak to us individually? And not just that, I mean, think of the cosmos, think of the shape of it and the size of it and the complexity of it. Think of the busyness that God must be attending to all the time just to keep the whole organism running. And he can speak to one person? I mean, it's it's a phenomenon to me. How is that even possible? When I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have made, I wonder what are human beings that you make so much of the mere mortals that you are mindful of them. I mean, this was the psalmist talking when all they thought was in terms of one solar system. And now, 
Now, what do they say? 300 billion solar systems, maybe, or galaxies? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's a stunning thing. And the word of the Lord comes to you. But in what form? Well, God speaks to us theologically in in three ways. First of all, through the world that God has made. Paul said this in Romans. He said, what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. Ever since the beginning of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible as they are, nevertheless have been seen and understood through the things that God has made. Everything expresses the Word of God, everything that is. Michael Frost is an Australian theologian and evangelist, and he was at our house one time, and we needed to kill a little time before he caught an airplane. And so he said, well, he said, show me the sights of Houston. It's the sights of Houston. I mean, if someone said that here in Atlanta, you'd have lots of places to take people. But, you know, Houston is one of the great cities of the world, and it's distinguished because it really doesn't have any sites. <laughs> I mean, there's the Astrodome, but mostly that's just, mostly that's just cockroaches and uh, spiders now, and no one goes there. But he mentioned, well, maybe you could take me to the Rothko Chapel. Well, I'd heard of the Rothko Chapel, but I'd never been there. I didn't know exactly where it was, but I scrambled and found out. And so there we were. As we were driving, he explained to me the Rothko Chapel contains 14 of the last of Mark Rothko's paintings. He's an internationally incredibly significant artist. And the Rothko Chapel has 14 of his paintings. So we stepped into the kind of cool darkness of the octagon, And I had to take a breath because, I mean, there were no paintings there. I didn't know if they were taking them out for restoration or if they were, you know, traveling around, taking a tour. But the walls were just blank. I mean, this is what the Rothko Chapel looked like. How sad. He's come to see the sights of Houston, and the one site is not even in town. But, you know, that didn't seem to bother Michael Frost at all. He just, he just stood there in front of the wall. And gradually it occurred to me that the walls were the paintings. Each of those panels is a study in the shades and colors of darkness. You look at the world around you. The world around you is a masterpiece. Don't look for the painting of God in this form or that form. Just accept that the whole thing is his masterpiece. So if your work is in the world of finance, every, I mean, learn as much as you can about finance because the more you know about finance, the more you know about anything, the more you know about God because this creation is his masterpiece. If you're in medicine or the sciences, get to know everything you can about the topic. If you're, if you're into social services, if you're in construction, learn all you can about what's in front of you. The world in front of you is your masterpiece. That's how God speaks to us. Now, I've been encouraging people for a long time to choose a God sign. I think I did that when I was here. And I don't know, sometimes uh, uh, people think that's kind of 
trivial, a God sign, really. But I've been encouraging people for probably 30 or 40 years to pick something that when they see it, they'll be reminded that God loves them and God's involved in their life. I need this because I have a short memory for such things. Well, I was giving a talk at a place called Laity Lodge in the hill country of Texas a while back, and I was the speaker, and the musician was a Nashville musician named Ashley Cleveland, and she, uh, she listened to me talk about picking God signs, and she told me later she thought that was the silliest thing she'd ever heard anybody say. But, she said, since I had said so, and she's kind of up for a challenge, she decided to pick a God sign, and it so happened that on the walls of the room where I was speaking, there were a number of there were a number of drawings of owls. So she decided to pick owls as her God sign. She wrote me later, I can't remember if it was six months or a year later, she, she wrote to tell me that she had been estranged from her daughter for a very long period of time. She didn't know where her daughter was. She didn't know what her daughter was doing. But then she went looking for her. And along the way, at every turn, that seemed to steer her closer to her daughter, there was an owl. Either an owl would hoot in a tree or would fly by or someone would mention. Oftentimes it was the most nonsensical thing. Right down to the moment when she was about to walk up the steps into the house where she believed her daughter might be and she looked down at the ground she saw a manhole cover and on the manhole cover someone had painted an owl. How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through the masterpiece of his creation, and his masterpiece is everything that is. Secondly, God speaks to us through his word. That would be the scriptures. The story of the Bible is a miracle in and of itself. Over a 2,000-year period of time with 40 or 45 authors, none of whom, well, most of whom did not know each other, hadn't spoken to each other. They wrote in every different kind of literary style, and yet it all holds together in this extraordinary document. All Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness in order that all who belong to God might be proficient and equipped for every good work. All Scripture is designed to make you proficient and equipped I mean, what a gift that is. Wouldn't you love to be proficient and equipped for what comes your way? Well, that's what comes to us in the Bible. R.C. Sproul is a Reformed theologian. He said when he went off to college, he was an atheist, but he uh, had a roommate one time who was a Christian. And from time to time, they would have deep theological conversations. And uh, on one occasion, his roommate was reading to him from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And the passage that he came to said, where a tree falls in the forest, whether it falls to the north or to the south where it falls, there it lays. And R.C. Sproul said he felt God moving in his life. Yeah, there are 31,173 verses in the Bible. I think R.C. Sproul must be the only one who was ever converted by that passage from Ecclesiastes about a tree falling in the forest and laying to the north or the south. And if that kind of obscure verse can impact a person's life, just imagine what happens if you read the, the Sermon on the Mount. What if, you, what if you get deeply familiar with the parables of Jesus, especially, you know, the parable of the prodigal son. What about, what about Psalm 23 or Psalm 100 or what about Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 40? I mean, this is a treasure trove of God's conversation with humanity. 
Now, the third way that God speaks to us is through His Word made flesh. I mean, you get the idea here. These are all W things. His Word, uh, through the world He has made, through the Word of Scripture and through the Word made flesh. That would be Jesus. Get it, become as familiar as you can with Jesus, with who He is, what He said, how He functioned in the world. The more closely you become associated with who Jesus is, the more you understand who you are. Uh, significant cancer hospital in Houston, MD Anderson. Some of you may be familiar with it. Uh, there's a part of it which is called the Mays Clinic. It's where people go for chemo infusion, basically, which takes a long time. People say, you know, MD Anderson, the M and the D stand for most of the day. And if you've been through that, you know it takes a long time. But they, they've really done a nice job of creating a very inviting space where people who are waiting can come and they can re there's a library there, magazines and books. There are places where you can plug in your computer. There's Wi-Fi, music. They have several large panels, aquariums, so you can watch the fish. And they've scattered around several card tables where they have placed uh, jigsaw puzzles. And you know, there's a strange thing about a jigsaw puzzle. Looking for a missing piece of a jigsaw puzzle has a wonderful way of, of erasing every other matter in your mind. So people work on the jigsaw puzzles. Well, there was one that nobody, we were there for the obvious reasons, and there was a puzzle that no one ever worked on. So I finally got curious, and I went over to check it out, and I discovered it was because the box was missing. See, if you don't have the box, you don't know what the puzzle's about. And Jesus is your box. If you know Jesus, you get to know how to put the pieces together of your life. As God's chosen, holy, and beloved, clothe yourselves in compassion. That, that's a piece to put your life together. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, these are pieces of your life. So, God speaks to us in these ways. He needed to get the attention of Jonah, needed to begin to familiarize him with the work he was going to do as a prophet. Now, you're familiar with the story of Jonah, but I'll just remind you that when the word of the Lord first came to Jonah, he was not interested. God said, go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the archenemy of Israel. It was the last place in the world he wanted to go or to be seen. He hated the Ninevites, and so he went the opposite direction to Tarshish, which is Spain. And if you understand the, the thinking of, of, uh, of the landscape and the whatever it was, 8th century B.C., you would understand that beyond Spain, there was the edge of the earth. See, they thought it was flat then, and basically you just disappeared. So he, Jonah decided to go to the end of the earth, literally, rather than to be obedient and go to the capital city of Assyria, Nar Tarsus, or uh, Nineveh. So he got on a boat to go the wrong way. There was a storm. He ended up over sea and in the water and then back on dry land because of the big fish for three days. And so he said, all right, I'll go. And he went off to Nineveh and he preached just as God had inspect, uh, instructed him to do, preaching repentance to the people. And a really crazy thing happened. The Ninevites repented. I mean, from the paupers to the princes, from the least to the greatest, they dressed themselves in sackcloth and they sat in ashes and they asked for God's mercy. And this just infuriated Jonah. 
He said, now, isn't this just the reason I told you I didn't want to come here in the first place? Because I knew you were a God like this who'd have mercy on people. And he was having such a tantrum over this that God put him in time out. He said, I want you to go out of the city. And so he went out of the city and up on a little hillside where he sat down on a rock just to kind of think things over. And while he was sitting there on the rock, a, a tree grew up. It was a broom tree. This is a broom tree. You can appreciate what a value that would be if you're living in the desert. Look at the shade that comes from that. So imagine Jonah sitting on one of those rocks under the broom tree, still holding out hope that God would call down fire from heaven to destroy the Ninevites. And then God sent a worm, and the worm killed the broom tree. So now he's sitting in the blazing sun, watching the people repent and God showing them favor, and it was just more than he could stand, and he had another attack of anger toward God about the death of the tree, and God finally said to him, you know, Jonah, you complain more about that broom tree than you do about 120,000 people who live in Nineveh plus a lot of cattle. I think that's just a little exclamation point he puts on it. You see, what God was trying to do was to not only educate Jonah, he was trying to elevate him so that he could see higher, could see farther. Maybe you're familiar with Rob Bell. He, he talks about how he's trying to jump on a trampoline with his son. Uh, his son was a lot smaller than him, and their, their jumps tended to cancel out the other until they figured out if they synchronized their jumping together, two things could happen. First of all, they would jump higher, and secondly, they could see farther. I think that's what, that's what we're here today for. But when you leave this place, everything you do will be, a, in a way, a challenge from God to try and synchronize your life with Him more and more so that you can rise higher and see farther. God not only wanted to educate Jonah, He wanted to elevate him. So a few years ago, Terry and I bought a piece of land. We built a lake house there. The land itself, just a small piece of land, about an hour north of Houston. It had seven pine trees on it, so we called it Seven Pines. Two of those pine trees are right down by the water. And we, we picked a house plan that would make the most of those two pine trees. And we carefully planned the placement of the house and then decks that went out between the two pine trees. Big pine trees, I mean, look, see the two pine trees right there? I mean, they're magnificent. I worry about something happening to those two pine trees. I mean, it's happened to our neighbors just in the last year. Two of our neighbors have lost big pine trees like those because of lightning strikes. So I pray for our pine trees. I lay my hands on our pine trees. I anoint them with oil. I read Scripture passages to them. And I was in the middle of that one time, and God said, you know, Dave, you pray more for these pine trees than you do for the suffering children of the world. I don't know if it's true for you, but it is true for Terry and me. We were talking about this the other day. We have developed this little cocoon around ourselves. It's comfortable. But sometimes someone needs to come along and remind us of what's out there on the other side of our cocoon. So I've chosen 
another sign. I not only have a God sign, which is birds, but I also have a mercy sign. And whenever I see a pine tree, that's my mercy sign. Whenever I see a pine tree, it reminds me, bless all the dear children in thy tender care and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. Jesus loves the little children of the world. All the children, black and white, they are precious in his sight. You know, the children's rhymes. Just Stephen Covey, I think it was Stephen Covey who told this story. He talked about getting on a subway car early in the morning. There were only a couple of people there on the car with him, and the door opened at some point, and a father with three little children came in, and they were just, the children were crazy. The father was just sitting there like in a trance, but the kids were running back and forth, bothering everybody, and the dad didn't seem to care. So that Stephen Covey got up out of his seat and went over and sat down next to the dad, and he said, excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you, but can't you notice that your children are out of control? And it was like he snapped his fingers in front of the man's eyes. He said, oh, I'm so sorry, said I. He said, we're just coming from the hospital where my wife, their mother, just died, and I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, you understand what happens in that moment, don't you? It's like you're suddenly transformed to the way you view the situation. You, you see things as they really are, and you, your concerns and your compassion is elevated. Well, I was talking about our one-year-old and five-year-old living with us. Christmas time came, and our five-year-old was to be in the Christmas pageant. I've been to a lot of pageants, you know. <laughs> I've been a pastor coming up on 50 years. I've been, I've been there. So we went to the pageant, and the music director came out at the beginning. She said, well, I just want to warn you that during this pageant, don't be surprised if you get a lump in your throat and a tear in your eye. And I thought, sister, So there we were, I'm sitting down. Luke, the one-year-old, a year and a half, really sitting in my lap. And his brother, Nathan, coming down the aisle, he's one of the three wise men. Well, I told you his dad is 6'8", his mom is 6'1". He's a head taller than anybody else. So here he comes down the aisle, and they're dressed in these really nice robes. These weren't bathrobes from the closet. These were really kind of wise men robes with a big crown on. So pretty fascinating sight to his little brother. Luke is looking down that way. I'm looking over that way. Nathan comes down and he pauses right there beside us. Nathan reaches out just these two fingers, and with them he brushed his brother's cheek. And it was just so beautiful. And I, I found a tear in my eye. But that's what God's doing through the prophets, you see springing us out of our kind of hardcore life, educating us to what is, elevating us to what can be, giving him and through him to us his touch of grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the prophets Jesus himself said the Old Testament prophets were mostly overlooked. They were stoned. They were killed.
for simply telling the truth. But I pray that, that you would uh, give us a kind of prophetic voice. I pray that you would continue educating us and elevating us to be people of true knowledge and deep compassion for the world where you have sent us to serve. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.